me in your Bibles to the third chapter of the book of Ephesians. We have made it to chapter 3, and we will start in verse 1. You can find that in the navy blue Bibles in your pews on page 1160, and it'll be on the screen behind me as well. And so we begin. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed. To his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is the word of the Lord, and so again we say, thanks be to God. You might have heard the expression before that we stand on the shoulders of giants, an expression often used by historians. This is a way of expressing both humility and thanksgiving for people of the past who worked really hard to think on a lot of things and explain a lot of things that now we're in a position where we we practically just take it for granted. It's obvious to us what they worked very hard to, to, uh, to clarify, to shed light on, and such that now we just sort of assume it in our day in, day out. So there's lots we didn't come up with, but there's a lot that we benefit from. And so the image is, is sort of given of a, of a very small person standing on the shoulders of a giant, now being able to see for miles all around. And so the idea is, because of brilliant men who came before us, we know a lot, we can see a lot, we stand on the shoulders of giants. The, the expression dates back to the 12th century, we're not really sure who originally said it, but it helps us to remember that there are lots of things we take for granted because we think they're obvious that might have not been obvious to previous generations. Try explaining a constitutional republic to someone who's lived under a monarchy for 12 generations. Concepts like freedom of the press or religious liberty, these would be revolutionary ideas to a lot of our ancestors. Even something more theological like the understanding that we have of the Trinity and which we confess readily enough in our catechisms, for example, it took some years for the church to work out her language on that. One of the great gifts that every generation has, though, is the ability, the, the, the gift to rest comfortably in old ideas precisely because they're old. They've stood the test of some time. And when they were new, they were anything but restful. Indeed, they were often costly. The reason I'm asking all of you to think about that this morning is that I think we take for granted something that was absolutely mind-blowing to Paul's first century readers. And that is that the blood of Jesus Christ and His work on the cross has torn down the wall of separation between Jew and Gentile. It is hard to put into words just how revolutionary and even offensive that was for Paul's readers and for the people of first, the first century. 
What is revealed in Paul's letter, though, to the Ephesians is that he really does have a pastor's heart. He longs for his readers to get handles on, to get a grasp on what God has done, and then celebrate it. So let us seek to do the same this morning. To grasp what God has done for us in Christ, and then to celebrate it over gumbo. I want to show you that there are at least three things that we can see from our text this morning. First, the Apostle Paul has a story to tell. It is his own story. Second, he has knowledge to share, some things God has revealed to him. And third, he has a mystery to reveal. Okay, A story to tell, knowledge to share, and a mystery to reveal. Let's start with a story to tell. If you'll join me, chapter 3 of Ephesians, verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me, so he's he's telling them about his story, assuming you've heard my testimony, the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. So at the start of his letter, Ephesians chapter 1, you might recall, Paul identifies himself as an apostle. Here, he just calls himself prisoner on behalf of you Gentiles. You have the distinct sense that when you read him, though, he's not complaining. He's just stating reality. He's not even praying for release, for heaven's sake. He's simply telling them, I'm a prisoner, as you know. I'm bearing that burden for you. I'm a prisoner for the gospel, the one that saves you. The one that brings you in. The one that forgives you and makes you part of this family. Not complaining, Paul is. In fact, he understands his circumstances in light of God's plan and purpose. And so the remarkable thing is, that's not the mystery. What I I mean is that I think for more than a few of us, if you had served God faithfully, loved Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, been given, for heaven's sake, a vision of the resurrected Jesus, and then you find yourself sitting in prison, that might be the mystery. But it's not the mystery. He's not complaining about that. This is remarkable because most people, when they find themselves in a hard providence, in a hard circumstance, the first thing they do is try to figure out why. We are interpreters by nature. So you get hit with a hard providence, perhaps a death, maybe even a suicide, a loss of money, loss of a job. And our immediate reaction is to put a call in to the Divine Providence Customer Service Department and say, I think there's been some mistake, right? Can I speak to your supervisor, please? Which is not bad. That's not a bad impulse, right? To say, why, Lord? Why, why am I sitting in the middle of this ugly, hard providence. The psalmists do it all the time. But one of the things you start to notice in Paul's writing, and especially, frankly, in his prayers, is how rare it is for Paul to ask for a change in his circumstances. It's kind of astonishing because they usually kind of stunk. The more you read Paul, the more you realize he had a story to tell, and his afflictions and his hardships were part of that story that he was telling. He believes that God is working in the midst of them. He says, Paul, a prisoner, because I guess God just wants me to suffer. No. Paul, a prisoner, for your sake, you Gentiles. You see, he's, he's got a purpose behind where he is. He's got a purpose behind his circumstance. Hi, I'm Paul. I'm a prisoner. I know why I'm here. It's for you. (laughs) Now, maybe you're thinking, 
Well, Brian, probably the reason Paul can say that is because, you know, he had a vision or something. Jesus came down just before he went to prison. Jesus came down and said, Paul, my son, at approximately 1130 on a Thursday afternoon, you are going to be bound and taken to prison. But fret not, it's for the sake of these Gentiles. And Paul said, Thursday at 1130, my schedule is clear. I don't think so. I think rather Paul is simply making an educated guess at what God is doing based on what he knows. That God's going to use his ministry. But then he says something else. He not, not only does he say he's a prisoner, he calls himself a steward. Did you see in verse 2? Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. So he's a prisoner and he's got a stewardship. He's a steward. What's a steward? Well, a simple definition of a steward is one who is responsible for taking care of something or someone that doesn't belong to him. So if someone leaves on vacation and you house sit for them while they're gone, that's a stewardship, right? It comes with great blessing. You can enjoy their swimming pool. You can play with their dogs. You can jump on their bed if you want. You do have to make sure that the place is sorted and put back as it was when they get back. That the dogs get fed, that the doors stay locked, that the mail comes in and so on. But it's a stewardship, right? You can enjoy it, but it doesn't belong to you. In Christian thinking, everything we own is technically a stewardship, okay? Because everything we own ultimately belongs to God. Ultimately, it's a gift from God to be used for His kingdom. Your house is a stewardship. Your car is a stewardship. Your office, if you have one, is a stewardship. Your smartphone, if you have one, is a stewardship. Who doesn't have one, right? Your knowledge, what God has blessed you with, your education, your money. It's all for your use in line with God's purposes. It's all, all of it is on loan to be used well, to make a profitable return for the sake of the kingdom. So what does Paul mean by a stewardship of grace? He means that God has given him grace. That's what he's been given. By grace you have been saved. Right? And what is Paul to do with that grace? Steward it. He's supposed to share it. He's supposed to preach it. He's supposed to put it on display while he sits in prison. Here's the point. Paul has an affliction. He's in prison and he has a responsibility. He's a steward of grace. If you want to understand how Paul grasps his own identity as a Christian, there it is. He understands his afflictions and he understands his responsibilities. He brings them together for his work, for his life, for his ministry. Why is that important? Because I submit to you, most people struggle mightily to hold their afflictions together with their responsibilities. Most people struggle to hold together their, their struggles and suffering with their stewardship. Some people make their life all about their afflictions so they can be excused from their responsibilities. The attitude is, because my life hurts, I am excused from God's call to obedience, right? Because I'm a victim of some hardship, I should not be accountable for my sin. I have a horrible job. That's why I drink to excess, right? I have a hard home life. 
That justifies my addictions or my angry outbursts, my other sinful patterns. I have bad kids. That's why I yell all the time. I have a physical illness or a mental illness. That's why I don't have to try so hard. I have a wife who nags and complains a lot. So that justifies my emotional distance and my coldness and why I avoid being at home. I have a harsh and rude husband. That's why I don't take him seriously and treat him like the jerk that he is. And if anybody threatens my excuse making, I will quickly remind them of my afflictions. Because my afflictions dissolve my responsibility. You see the way that the devil works? No, they don't. No, they don't dissolve your responsibility. If your afflictions are not somehow integrated in your mind and heart into the bigger picture of what God is doing, which is what Paul did. Paul, a prisoner for you. If your afflictions are not integrated into what God is doing, they will probably produce a bitterness in you to think that God's commands do not apply. Because if God is just hurting you with no purpose, He sort of owes it to you then to let you off the hook in a few areas. Paul says, I'm a prisoner. Here's what God's doing with that. Well, but Brian, what if I don't know what God is doing? I mean, here's my affliction, and I have no blessed idea what God is up to in it. That's pretty common, actually. And I'm actually saying... I don't think Paul has, has a great deal more information than you do in the midst of most of your afflictions. I would say if you don't know what God's doing, take your best guess and hold it with an open hand. Truly. I'm sick and I don't know why. Okay? Uh, has being sick humbled you? Oh, for sure. All right. Go with that. I mean, until you can figure something else out, out that, that fits. But grab on to something. Grab on to something. Other times, people emphasize their responsibilities, but don't have no way to account for their affliction. So they work hard, they obey God, serve in their church, love their family well, are generally cheerful, kind, generous people, and then some kind of hard providence comes, and they can't bear it. They just totally break under the weight. What's happening? Well, well, this isn't right. You know, this doesn't happen to good, obedient Christians. Good Christians don't get sick. Good Christians don't get cancer. Good Christians don't have to wander around in medical mysteries that even the best doctors can't figure out what the heck is going on. Good Christians don't get depressed. Good Christians don't get cheated or robbed. Their families don't get hit with hardship or death or suicide, right? wrong. If anything, it seems in history that some of God's mightiest warriors have been troubled by some of the most terrible sorts of trouble, persecution and pain. Why? Well, for starters, we follow a crucified man. We kind of have to budget for a measure of suffering. But we know our afflictions have a purpose, and in the midst of our afflictions, our responsibilities remain intact. Your story is one of affliction and responsibility. With, these, uh, with one of these never excusing or removing the other. Okay, So, first point then, a story to tell. But Paul also has knowledge to share. Uh, over in verse 3, before we get there, Paul's been giving information, excuse me, he's been given information by Jesus himself. Seems a bit obvious, but I don't want us to hurry past it. 
Because we just talked about affliction and responsibility. Part of Paul's responsibility is that he's been given information in the form of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's called to do something with that information, namely share it and celebrate God's acceptance of the Gentiles with those Gentiles. Paul is very clear about the reality God has given him something and he's supposed to talk about it. Okay, if we can go to verse 3 then, for real this time. Uh, How the mystery was made known to me by revelation. There it is. As I've written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, think Old Testament saints, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So Paul says rather straightforwardly, God told me some stuff, right? That is part of what it means to be an apostle, to have special revelation from God, which is for God's people, That is to be preserved and preached forever. Paul says, you guys already know how God has given me insight into this revelation. He's given it to other apostles and prophets too. That is the stewardship that that he just told us about. When I said I was in prison for your sake, it's because I've been given this revelation to share with you. Now, what does that have to do with us? While while I am not uh, what 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 many refer to in the debate over spiritual gifts. While I am not what some call a cessationist, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, the Lord has blessed you greatly. I I, I do believe that the office of apostle has come to an end. There are no more apostles. So if, if if we're not to imitate Paul's claim to apostleship, what's the imitation here? You know, if we're not to imitate apostleship and expect special revelation outside of what God has already said in His Word, what are we supposed to do with this? The answer is, I want you to focus on what you do have in common with Paul, and that is the very same revelation that he's giving to the Gentiles has been given to you. It is your calling to do as he did, namely to share it whatever the cost. This is actually true uh, not just with respect to evangelism, sharing the gospel with our unbelieving neighbors and so on. It's also true just all wisdom and insight that we receive from the Lord. What I'm trying to say is that Paul understood that God does not reveal things just for fun, just for the sake of revealing. God reveals things and makes them known so that they might be shared with His people. There are things God has hidden And those are meant to stay hidden. There are things which God has revealed. And those things are meant to be shared with great zeal. As frequently as possible. The verse I have in mind here, Deuteronomy 29.29, some of you know it. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. That we may do all the words of this law. So there are things God has revealed in His Word, especially in this context by way of His law, His commands, that we are indeed to share and teach to our children and to each other. God wants us to know what He wants us to do. He has not been coy or indirect about telling us what He calls good and what He calls wicked, that we may do the same faithfully and teach others to do the same faithfully. And there are things God has not revealed they are hidden he's not said them and he means for them to stay not said 
single people, unmarried people. God has not revealed to you who your future wife or husband is going to be. Boy, that would be nice though, wouldn't it? <laughs> Lord, when my future wife walks into the room, could you cause a green light to shoot forth from her forehead such that only I can see it because that would otherwise be weird. Right? The married people are laughing at that. The single people are not. <laughs> But God hasn't revealed that. He also hasn't told you to wait on some internal gut punch to know who you're going to marry. He hasn't told you to wait on a feeling of peace or a feeling of ascension up into the clouds or a shiver in your liver or a coded message in the sky. You are not commanded anywhere in Scripture to wait on such things as a way of making decisions. So how then? What, well, what has He said? What has He revealed? In, in, in this situation, right, whatever we're talking about now, He's told you what's good in a spouse, the Lord has exalted godliness, wisdom, humility, chastity, steadiness, and so on. He's also warned you against complaining, bitterness, nagging, immodesty, foolishness, cowardice. If you see those things in a potential husband or wife, you should consider those things carefully. God has honored also, in addition, the value of physical attraction in its proper place. The Song of Solomon, for example, and a few other places. He has forbidden you to marry unbelievers or be unequally yoked. Those are all things He's revealed, okay? Those are things you are responsible to know, and with that knowledge, you are permitted and free to make a God-honoring decision. Well, what about my soulmate, Pastor Brent? No such thing. <laughs> Sorry to disappoint. There are no soulmates. There are only wise, there's wise matching and foolish matching and promises, <laughs> But back to the point, God has given you knowledge that you might share it with others. That's the revealed things. He has not given you knowledge, and by that I mean knowledge out of Scripture, knowledge in your education. Uh, I think this is especially true of, uh, uh, if, you have, if you've had theological training. God has not given you knowledge so that you can cloister yourself away in a corner somewhere, continuing to drown yourself in esoteric details about end times predictions, or the proper Hebrew pronunciation of that word, or trying to peer into the secret plans of Satan, or whatever else. Meanwhile, your neighbor doesn't know who Jesus is, and thinks that Constantine wrote half the Bible. Your knowledge is meant to be shared. That's what it's for. And so, we have, Paul has a story to tell, he has knowledge to share, and he has a mystery to reveal. This is so cool, because he, he comes to the end of our passage, uh, he's, he's far from the end of his thought, we're just stopping at verse 6 this morning, and you think mystery, okay, mystery is something that stays concealed, and Paul's whole point in calling this a mystery is to say, no, God has shined a big bright light on it and told us everything. This is the grand summit, the high points of these six verses. Paul's been talking about a mystery, talking about what God has revealed to him, but it's not a mystery that stays hidden. It's a mystery that's been revealed. It's not a mystery that's meant to stump us and make us scratch our heads. It's a mystery that's meant to be known that we might sing and rejoice. Look at verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Usually when we hear the word mystery, we think that means something complex and inaccessible. But this mystery, actually not very complex at all. It's pretty straightforward. Very easy to say, easy to articulate. 
But for first century Jews and Gentiles, it was incredibly hard to believe. So, so not complex, but emotionally difficult. The mystery is this, that Gentiles are fully included in all the promises of God's covenant by faith alone. Not needing to become Jews first. Not needing to become anything first. You see, Paul, Paul states this in three different ways. Did you catch it in the text? He says they're heirs together with the Jews. The Gentiles are members of one body with the Jews. The Gentiles are sharers with the Jews in the promises. This is the great mystery revealed. As I said, not complex, but it can still vex more than a few people even today. You see, according to the New Testament, God has taken these two peoples, Jew and Gentile, which is Jew and everybody else, and He's made them into one family. This is the power of the gospel. So I ask you, are there any remaining lingering ethnic tensions in any culture today? Just a few, right? That's what Jesus came to destroy in part. This means that there's only one people of God, not two peoples of God. This means that there is only one Israel. It's made up of two groups, the one Israel is. That is, Gentiles who believe the Lord Jesus, crucified and risen, and Jews who believe in the Lord Jesus, crucified and risen. It's important, especially in light of right, a lot of geopolitical issues today, to be very clear about this. The nation-state of Israel and all her citizens are allies of the United States. So far, so good. God be praised. And I do believe they have a right both to the land in which they live and the right to defend that land. But unbelieving descendants of Abraham do not have any part in the true Israel of God. Most missionaries who attempt to start a work in Israel are deported. It remains functionally illegal in the democratic state of Israel to preach the gospel. There are many more blood-bought Jesus Christ-confessing Gentiles in Palestine than there are Messianic Jews in Israel. What this means is that the chosen people are no longer to be identified ethnically. Remember what Jesus said. God can make children of Abraham out of the rocks if He needs to. That doesn't mean that God does not have a future plan for, uh, in, in history future for a widespread conversion of ethnic Jews. That's the hope Paul holds out in Romans 10 and Romans 11. We Gentiles have been grafted in. We are commanded to remain humble about that. God will one day graft branches of ethnic Israel back into the tree. But there is only one true Israel, and that is the blood-bought church of their Messiah, Jesus. And that is a mystery revealed that still confuses and confounds so many today. But at the heart of it is hope. You see, the mystery that God has revealed is that the Gentiles, by which we mean all the nations of the world, are called to know the Lord Jesus Christ and are called to worship Him. And therefore, to become members of this one body, partakers of these same promises, 
is to believe in the good news of what Jesus has done. That He's been crucified for our sins, that He's been raised for our justification, that He means to take confused, sinful, filthy men and women and pronounce them clean. Not only clean, but one with each other. You've been given all the riches of the covenants and the promises. This would be like waking up tomorrow morning and discovering that some distant uncle you didn't even know you had is of some royal line and he's died and left you everything. Well, that would be great news. Suddenly you have a royal identity and an unimaginable inheritance. Who doesn't want that story? Right? That's our story. That's our story. We are now members of the covenant family of God, the God who's been keeping His promises since Genesis. Right? We're part of that family. So that we can say, brothers and sisters, we can say, do you remember when God rescued us out of the hand of Pharaoh? That's our story. Remember when God had to break us in the wilderness? That's our story. Remember when he sent prophets and we wouldn't listen? That's our story. Remember when he sent us into exile? That's our story. Remember when he brought us out? Remember how our brother Nehemiah told us to be ready to fight and not lose heart? Remember when our sister Esther rescued us at the last second? That's why I preach the Old Testament, by the way. Those are, those are our stories too now. That's why we sing the Psalms. Those are our songs too now. That's why we feast at the table, fellow Gentiles. Because all of the promises are yes and amen in Christ. All of the festivals and ceremonies have been fulfilled in Him. All of the covenants have been pointing to Him. All of the fellowship that we have is in Him and through Him. And that's why we meet Him here to worship today around a table. That's why we come together to worship, to celebrate, and to feast. The mystery has been revealed. And the revelation is, He has accomplished it all for you. In the name of Jesus Christ, Amen. And so, our Father, we ask that, that, this, that this astounding mystery, just as we prayed a moment ago, that the fear of the Lord would rightly astound us, would rightly leave us in awe and amazement of all that the Almighty is and is for us. That you would also leave our hearts in awe at this mystery revealed that was not made known to those generations previous, but who long to see it. It's been given to us in the crystal clarity of a crucified and resurrected man. And so as we gather, Lord, we ask again that you would cause our hearts to rejoice because all of the promises are yes and amen. Indeed, we are in the family, baptized in and eating the food at the family table. To this we offer up our thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.